The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II Podcast, Episode 215, Collision Course, The Road to Pearl Harbor. For the third time, Chiang Kai-shek was setting up his new capital, this time in Chongqing, just over 1,000 kilometers from the coast, west of Shanghai, where this latest fighting with Japan had started. And most of that territory between the coast and Chongqing was controlled by the enemy, or at the very least, not controlled by the Chinese nationalists. Shanghai, Nanjing, Suzhou, Wuhan, and territories to the north of these, not to mention Manchuria, were gone, and no longer providing material, manpower, or money in the form of duties paid to Chang's government. And yet, the nationalists went on. For Chiang Kai-shek, the successor to Sun Yat-sen, had no choice. Not really. But the question was, how to go on? The West wasn't helping, even though Russia was contributing. But that was just Stalin's way of making sure Japan did not come after his eastern possessions. Yet Japan's prospects were little better. Yes, they were winning the war, a war the Supreme Command did not want, and did not know how to win. And by the end of 1938, Tokyo found itself putting practically its entire armed forces on the mainland. Not that this brought Chang to the negotiating table, for he would not talk unless the enemy moved back to the pre-1937 borders. And even then, many in Tokyo were convinced that this was nothing more than a ploy by the crafty nationalist leader. To make matters worse, for Japan's general headquarters, as we saw last time, the spring, summer, and fall of 1939 would see a clash between the Manchukuo army and Russians that ended up in a decisive Soviet victory, and later a non-aggression pact between the two. Japan would honor this, as they had to focus on China. But who knew what Stalin would really do? No, the Russian bear was still on the doorstep of Japan's territory on the mainland. And now, relations between Japan and the West, more specifically Great Britain and the United States, were anything but amenable. The West wasn't ready to step in to save China, 
but they made their displeasure known to Tokyo. All of Japan's problems were interconnected and seemingly unsolvable, all because Chiang Kai-shek would not see the reality before him, which at least made Tokyo's next move obvious. Chongqing and China's other major cities would have to be bombed into submission, and the Nationalist Army would have to be engaged and destroyed, whatever it took to get the Nationalists to talk. So when spring came in 1939, the Japanese found themselves with little choice but to push on towards Chongqing, as bombing raids for the last six months did little to alter Chiang Kai-shek's stubbornness. As such, the next two victims would be Suizhou, just 100 kilometers northwest of Wuhan, and Zhaoyang, another 30 kilometers to the northwest. These attacks, if successful, would not only allow the Japanese to control this section of a major highway, but further push the enemy away from the new Japanese base at Wuhan. On May 1st of 39, the Japanese 13th and 16th Divisions launched an attack from the east of both cities on Zhaoyang. Meanwhile, the remainder of the 113,000 troops assigned to these attacks made for Suizhou. Defending Zhaoyang was the Chinese 77th Corps, and these men gave a good account of themselves at first. But with overwhelming artillery and air support, the Chinese defenders were pushed back and to the south, leaving their cities behind on May 7th. The next day, the Japanese took control of both cities. The land now controlled by the invaders was coming that much closer to Chongqing, not to mention various important roads and rail lines. However, as the defenders had been losing land, their interior lines were now much shorter, and there were other divisions just west of this fighting. As such, the Chinese 2nd and 33rd Army groups showed up, hitting the enemy in their western or right flank. Other units were dispatched to harass the Japanese supply lines. Worse still, the men of the defeated 77th Corps, initially pushed out of their respective towns, also now chose to re-engage the enemy. The Japanese, relying on their air power, which caused thousands of enemy casualties, could not hold the land already taken. As the Japanese supplies quickly became spotty, the invaders began to backtrack on May 15th. The Chinese, worked up by the success, continued to push. Five days later, the two towns were back in Chinese hands. And yet the Chinese continued battling the enemy, but they would exhaust themselves within days of taking back the towns. Still, by the end of the month, the Chinese had not only recaptured territory recently lost, but regained other land held by the enemy since the fall of Wuhan. For this short-lived victory, the Japanese had lost at least 9,000 men, with thousands more being wounded. Of course, the Chinese lost more, mostly due to enemy airstrikes, around 13,000, with more wounded. By September of 39, the Japanese troops within China were reorganized under the China Expeditionary Command, 
and it was this entity that was tasked by Tokyo with bringing the war to a successful conclusion. As the last conflict at Suizhou and Saoyang had demonstrated, the Japanese still had to be wary of extending themselves too far, much less taking territory without having the troops to hold out against counterattacks. So in late August, it was decided to take a new tact. As the hated Russians had signed a non-aggression pact with Germany, and those same Russians defeated other Japanese forces along the Mongolian-Manchukuoan border, the troops on the ground needed some good news. And what more good news could there be, besides being told they were going home, that they would soon have all the food they needed? War basically comes down to fighting on, despite missing meals, sleep, and knowing what the enemy is really up to. And if the Japanese could take the city of Changsha, the provincial capital of Hunan, 200 kilometers southwest of Wuhan, the breadbasket of central China, then those Japanese men, far from home, with no idea of when they could return to Japan, would at least not have to worry about their next meal for a long time. Furthermore, with Changsha taken, the way to Chongqing and the province of Sichuan, just west of the nationalist capital, would be open. With both under Japanese control, Chang would have no real safe place to flee to, and besides, his way to the west would be cut off. Hopefully, the end of the China incident was in sight. Hello everyone, Ray here. From Audio Boom comes Mafia, a brand new podcast taking us into America's criminal underworld, exploring the lives and careers of the most powerful gangsters the world has ever seen. Through extensive research and eyewitness stories, Mafia reveals what life was really like inside the mob from the people who lived it. Every Wednesday, Mafia dives into the larger-than-life stories of mobsters and introduces us to the key figures who brought them down. In Season 1, host Fleet Cooper will bring us closer than ever to the most notorious mob bosses of all time by taking us inside the lives of Sam Giacana, Dutch Schultz, Bugsy Siegel, Charles Lucky Luciano, John Gotti, and Donnie Brasco. Discovering how they built their criminal empires and revealing how the Mafia is connected to the assassination of JFK. Subscribe to Mafia on Apple Podcasts and every other listening destination. As the Japanese already controlled major sections of Jiangxi province on the eastern border of the Hunan province, their attack was launched on September 14th by Lieutenant General Nakai's 106th Division. As the Japanese start-off point was some 180 kilometers southeast of Changsha, it was decided to drive due west at first, but then turn north once they were below the target city. And that's what the 106th did, but then ran right into the Chinese 184th Division of the Chinese 60th Corps. The Japanese were on a timetable as they were coordinating their attack with Lieutenant General Amakasu's 33rd Division, which was already further west, but a bit to the south. Hence, they would be driving due north. The two forces would come together and support each other on a drive 
on Cheng Sha. After intense fighting from both sides, which was not always the case for the Chinese, the Japanese 106th pushed the Chinese 184th out of the way and took the town of Gangzhou. After a short rest, the 106th now turned to the northwest, was joined by the 33rd, and together they captured several other, though smaller, towns. Having moved so far so fast, the Japanese began their attack on Changsha proper on September 17th. The two divisions from the south were doing well and were joined by the 101st Division as it came down from the north. This tactic had worked so well for the Japanese, being outnumbered as they were, and was working once again. But now that they were closing in on the main city, their attack was stalled by sheer defensive numbers. This allowed other Chinese divisions to come from further north and south and attack those attacking Changsha. Also again, as they had done before, the Chinese had used their numbers to not only attack the enemy from various directions, but also sent men around to harass the Japanese supply line. The attackers found themselves being held up and running low on ammunition. With this kind of pressure, the Japanese were looking for ways to retreat east, but first needed to push back the Chinese. So on September 19th, the Japanese used poison gas on those defenders closest to them. This was not the first, nor would it be the last, chemical attack. It must be remembered that Japan never signed the Geneva Protocol. As the attack around Changsha was tying down the balance of Japanese forces in the area, the Chinese 74th and 32nd Corps retook Gangzhou to the southeast on September 22nd. However, the next day, the Japanese, with the help of gas attacks and air support, drove the Chinese away from below Changsha. What's more, the Japanese used their navy and command of the waterways to bring in parts of the 3rd Division. They were unloaded by the Shanghai Special Navy Landing Forces, and soon, with this influx of reinforcements, Changsha was back to being surrounded on three sides. The attack on the city was renewed by the Japanese, and they even managed to drive Chinese forces to the south further away. But this retreat turned out to be a feint, as other defending divisions arrived from further west and east. Now it was the reinforced Japanese troops threatened with encirclement. And again, the Chinese went after the attacker's supply lines. By September 29th, elements of the Japanese 6th Division were just outside Changsha. But to get to this point, they had suffered massive casualties. By some estimates, 40,000, of which many were deaths. Those Chinese units not directly involved in attacking the city were ordered to pull back to the east. It was hoped that many of the defenders would follow them, leaving the 6th alone to take Changsha. The ploy did not work. As October opened up, more Japanese units were told to retreat east. By the 6th, even those around Changsha were ordered to move out. Just one week later, the Chinese 
had recaptured the territory they lost in the northern Hunan province, northwest of Changsha, and also southern Hubei province, just above Hunan, and northern Jiangxi province, due east of Changsha. With this victory, the Chinese kept southern China in play, as a Japanese victory here could have been pushed further south, to Canton, along the coast. With the strategic situation thus, military dictates stated that the nationalists should go on the offensive. They had the momentum, their men were eager to fight, to reclaim more of their territory, and Chiang Kai-shek wanted the same thing. So massive counterattacks were to be ordered. However, none of this took away from Japanese air dominance, or superior artillery, or their naval power. And Chiang Kai-shek would find that in 1940, very few things would go right, forcing him to pull back once again and focus on a defensive war. Part of the Nationalist plans were to hold out until help from the West came. But on August 23rd, just before the Battle of Changsha got underway, the Soviets and Germans announced a non-aggression pact. What did this mean for China, now that Russia, currently helping China, had signed an agreement with Germany, which had close ties to its enemy, Japan? At the very least, nothing good. But it got worse from there, on September 1st, when Nazi Germany invaded Poland. Within days, Britain and France had come to Poland's aid, at least on paper. Now any attention Chang and his nationalists were getting from Europe disappeared. After all, back in May of 1937, British Prime Minister of Great Britain, Neville Chamberlain, had said of Czechoslovakia that it was a far-off country of which we know nothing. Which could only mean that China must have seemed to be on a different planet entirely. No, once again, events outside of his control affected Chang's plans for an alliance against Japan. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Of course, there was still the United States. Back in December of 1938, U.S. Treasury Secretary 
Henry Morgenthau had organized a private loan of $25 million to China. It was a start, but that's as far as the Western power would go. And those funds did not make it any easier to get goods bought to Chongqing, which was about to become all but impossible. Having suffered several defeats by extending itself too far west, the China Expeditionary Command went back to the idea of strangling Chongqing from the outside. So, in November of 39, Lieutenant General Kuno and Major General Makumura, with their 18th Division, supported by a couple additional brigades, 100 planes, and 70 warships of various kinds, landed in Guangxi province, along the coast, some 250 kilometers west of Canton and due south of Chongqing. These forces drove 100 kilometers inland and captured the provincial capital, Naning. This had been the last port receiving goods for the nationalist government, but it was now in enemy hands. To receive supplies from now on, the defenders would have to either use the rails and roads of Indochina, the Burma Road, or in the future, fly the goods over the hump, the eastern end of the Himalayan mountains from India to China. As this was intolerable, if the nationalists were going to stay in the fight, numerous counterattacks were launched at the Japanese in Guangxi for the next year. Much of the fighting took place in the Kulun Pass, just north of the capital. There, the two sides bled each other. Just to jump ahead for a moment, the Japanese would launch their Vietnam expedition in September of the following year, 1940. And with their control of that area, the costly, in terms of lives and money, occupation of Guangxi was no longer needed. The Japanese would pull out in November of 1940, making the battle last one year long. Of course, they kept some holdings along the coast, but had their warships nearby to protect these enclaves. With the nationalists so cut off, the Japanese waited to see how Chung would react. Would he finally come to the table, knowing it was only a matter of time before his numerous troops ran out of ammunition? But nothing changed on that score, so it looked as if the drive on Chongqing was necessary. 1939 ended, and the Japanese waited for spring to come. The first step would be to take Yichang, about 200 kilometers west of Wuhan, but still short of Chongqing itself, by another 500 kilometers. Still, it would be progress, and again, the Japanese vision of victory still lingered upon the idea of bringing the Chinese troops to battle, to destroy them outright. And yet, Lieutenant General Sonobe would only bring just under 50,000 men for this coming attack. As it was on the road, or in truth, the water, to Chongqing, the attackers had to have known the path would be lousy with defenders. And so it was. Generals Li Zongren and Zhang would have some 350,000 men between them defending. The Japanese came anyways, on May 1st, 1940, in two columns, hoping to bring out their more numerous defenders, to strike them 
in a pincer movement. However, the Chinese were content to stay in their mountain forts and await the attackers to run out of supplies. The two sides clashed for the next six weeks, the Japanese hoping to be able to fight the Chinese in the open, while the defenders fought only when they had to. By June 18th, the Japanese had taken Yichang along the Yangtze, but were hoping for so much more. This, along with their 2,700 men being killed and another 7,800 being wounded, would cause this, the Battle of Zhaoyi, to be counted as a Chinese victory, in that the attackers did not get any further. However, because of this latest conflict, the lives of everyone in Chongqing were about to be affected for the worst. As Yichang had been a major transit point from Sichuan, Chongqing was even more cut off than before. But worse, with Yingchang now in their possession, the Nationalist headquarters was within range of Japan's Mitsubishi Zero Fighter, one of the most advanced in the world. Within a very short time, the remaining defending fighters over Chongqing would be wiped out, and the city even more open to bombing raids, which the Japanese increased during the summer of 1940. And this defense of Chongqing from the air, while keeping the Japanese at bay on the ground, only became harder as Stalin intensely cut back his assistance to Chiang Kai-shek. Having his non-aggression pact with Nazi Germany and a ceasefire with Japan after Nomahom, Stalin invaded Finland in November of 39, a.k.a. the Winter War. Right away, Britain and France called for a motion to expel Soviet Russia from the League of Nations. Chiang Kai-shek, as the head of China, could have used his veto on the motion, but as he was angry at Stalin for not helping more and seemingly making peace with Japan, the man in Chongqing decided not to. Stalin was now deeply distrustful of Chang, and as such, supplies from Moscow dwindled. As Chiang Kai-shek had dealt with every situation imaginable for the last three years, Tokyo, his adversary, was about to suffer its own convulsions. Back in January of 1939, Prime Minister Kanoye, after deciding, at first, to escalate the war with China, then to declare he would no longer deal with the nationalist leader, then to give the military practically all the power with his national mobilization law, only still to see that Cheng would not capitulate, resigned from his position. His excuse was that he was being tired of being a robot for the military, which was true enough, but only after being its partner during 1937. His replacement was Hiranuma Kichiro, a former prosecutor with a reputation for fighting corruption. However, as power now rested with the military, Hiranuma found himself unable to alter the course of the war. He was also equally powerless to change events in Europe. During the first half of 1939, the new Prime Minister's cabinet debated some 70 times whether to join Germany and Italy in its pact. This would help protect Japan from Russia, 
having an ally on Russia's western border. However, Hironuma believed this would put Japan on an eventual collision course with the United States and Great Britain at a time when the bulk of its forces were in China. But then came the Battle of Nomaham, covered last time, and the Molotov-Ribbentrop Agreement. Suddenly, there was an understanding between Russia and Germany, which left Japan further isolated. Having his world turned upside down, Prime Minister Haranuma resigned on August 30th, having served just eight months. The next Prime Minister was General Nobayuki Abe, former Governor General of Korea. Although there was no enthusiasm for Abe, the military was mostly behind him, so the position was his. In truth, the army wanted another, but that person was seriously ill. Abe wanted to end the war with China, but on Japan's terms, so nothing new there. But he also wanted to formally align Japan with Germany and Italy, yet a consensus could never be reached within his own cabinet. His military backers quickly became disillusioned, and so Abe resigned on January 16, 1940. Abe's replacement was another military man, this time Admiral Mitsumasa Yonai. As a military man, Yonai was pro-American and pro-British, in that he never wanted to see Japan in a conflict with the two industrial giants. However, like Chiang Kai-shek, events in Europe dominated his office. In the spring of 1940, Germany invaded the West and quickly overran Denmark, Norway, Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, and France. These seemingly easy victories stirred the passions of the Japanese military, who ironically had decided earlier, in 1940, to pull out of China, except the North if the war was not won within a year. But now, with their blood racing at seeing Hitler's example, the men of the General High Command altered their thinking 180 degrees. Chanting, don't miss the bus, it was decided, as France and Britain seemed all but beaten, to go after their possessions in Southeast Asia, with all its oil and other resources. Furthermore, on June 22nd, the Army General Staff and the War Ministry met to discuss launching a surprise attack against Singapore. The vote was barely shot down, but the tide for a wider war was rising. Before July 1940 ended, Prince Kanoye was persuaded to set up his second government, and within his cabinet there would be two fresh faces. As Foreign Minister Yusoki Matsuoka, a.k.a. Mr. 50,000 Words, because of his ability to talk forever without saying anything substantial, a favorable trait in a politician. The other new man would be War Minister Lieutenant General Haidike Tojo. His nickname was The Razor. He rarely spoke, demanded complete obedience, but had the sense to only pick men to serve him who had experience and intelligence. What their political connections were could not have mattered less to the razor. Just four days old, this new cabinet 
in dealing with, quote, Japan's great ordeal without precedence, unquote, unanimously decided to bring Japan, Manchukuo, and China together in peace to create a new order in Greater East Asia. Of course, Japan would be at the head of this new order, and China would be forced into this new order. But it was in Asia's best interest. Who knew how the war in Europe would affect the rest of the world? It was Japan's obligation to protect all Asians. As such, every person, every aspect of Japanese life would be mobilized for the state-planned economy. Everything everyone did in Japan now was to further the goals of the new order. To safeguard itself, Japan would sign the tripartite pact with Germany and Italy, and a non-aggression pact would be sought with Russia. Having the ceasefire from the Nomaham incident was a good starting point. As for the Americans, that was a different kettle of fish. With conflicts popping up all around the world, the American public had changed its attitude concerning strict neutrality. As such, a new law in 1939 allowed President Roosevelt to help Chang somewhat. Taking the next step, FDR informed Tokyo that the United States would be withdrawing from the 1911 Treaty of Commerce, which meant after six months' time, the United States could lessen or stop exports to Japan. The president was hoping this would give Japan the excuse it seemed to need to pull out of China. But Tokyo called his bluff and continued the conflict. Roosevelt was then left with the decision to reduce trade with Japan or not. But in the end, after six months, he turned away from this as it might force the Japanese military to turn to the possessions of the French, the British, and the Dutch. But when Prince Kanoye formed his second cabinet, clearly with a more aggressive group of people, the United States started an embargo of aviation gasoline and high-grade scrap iron to Japan. In truth, this was only a small percentage of what went to Japan, but the message was clear. However, Tokyo had its own ace. With Europe embroiled in war, perhaps pressure could be put on the Dutch and French for concessions. And if they said no, well, Europe was a long way away. The Japanese military made plans to move into Southeast Asia. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. 